Well, welcome this morning again to Fellowship Bible Church. Glad that you're here with us. Uh, if you're tuning in uh, live on the computer on YouTube, we welcome you as well. Thank you for participating with us that way. I know some of you can't come out. A little too much risk for you. So we, uh, we are glad that you're able to participate at least that way. Let's turn to Isaiah 6, please. Somewhat diminutive chapter in biblical revelation. Just 13 verses. Actually, surprised at that. I would have just thinking about it, thought it would have been longer because it's got such an important place in our theology if you think of the contents of it. So let's read Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He is seeing here, Isaiah is, the vision of God, which is in a sense his kind of inauguration or installation into ministry. Verse 2, above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of Him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Notice the order of events there. He sees God. He admits his sinfulness. He's cleansed of his sin. And now the Lord does something else with Isaiah, starting in verse 8. It says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. So, recognizes God. His sin is cleansed, forgiven, and now to serve. And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So naturally, Isaiah's question is, in his mind, that doesn't sound super pleasant. Uh, How long do I have to do this for, Lord? So he said, then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has moved men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, 
so the holy seed shall be its stump. It's all about a remnant. It's all about a remnant. And so he uh, is told, you're going to have to preach to a people who are very stiff-necked and they will not listen. But you must continue to minister anyway. And so that's how the field is for some farmers, some spiritual farmers. They just have to keep plowing and keep planting and, and hope that a little remnant will come even if uh, it's many, many years of, of doing that. I welcome you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We continue our study of the gifts of the Holy Spirit today. This section of uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church is all about that. 12, chapters 12, 13, and 14, although 13 often gets forgotten in the mix because of the first half of the chapter is so well known and so used out of its context. But... We won't get there for another couple of weeks yet, uh, most certainly after uh, Christmas, because we'll take, uh, well, I'll probably take this section next time, but then, uh, of course, Christmas, uh, the 20th, I want to speak on another matter, having to do with the holiday, of course. So we continue our study in chapter 12. We cement our understanding here that there are many members of a unified church, but there is a diversity of gifts in that church. The Lord gives that variety of gifts for the benefit of the church. That's kind of the whole message. You could just fold up your Bible and go home now, but I won't let you do that just quite yet. I want to say a few more words about it uh, if you would allow me this, this morning. So we trust the Lord to help us. Let's read, starting in verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. So the structure of the text in the first three verses is very tidy. If you notice that carefully, you'll see that it's, and I've laid it out here for you in the notes actually, there are diversities of gifts there are differences of ministries. There are diversities of activities. And then the second half of that, of each phrase, uh, the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. So you have three verses, three parallel sets, or three parallel pairs, if you will. And that helps us understand that the gifts and the ministries and the activities are essentially synonymous. We could make maybe a fine distinction between them. We could say, well, and, and sometimes you know, Bible students want to do this because they say, well, the Lord used different words, so there must be different, you know, super duper different meanings there. We've got to get at those things. And I understand that not only tendency, but also the value of being careful about that. Um, you know, maybe you could say, well, the gifts are the, the, in the first line are the abilities given by the Spirit, and the, in the second line, the ministries are the areas in which those gifts are exercised in service to the Lord. And 
And then the activities, depending on your translation, could be the effects or the results or the outcome of those ministries. So you have, you know, the gift and you have the the actual ministry in which the gift is utilized and then you have the outcome or the result of that. But I think it's probably better to just treat these as a package deal so that they are essentially synonymous. They all refer to basically the same thing, including what he gives us and how he expects us to use it in the church for the positive outcome that it is intended. Uh, just a little note of detail in my translation there, the words are diversities, differences, and diversities. That would better be translated all three the same. They're the same word in Greek. Um, so it should be uh, maybe your ESV or NIV has the same in each case, and that's good. That's a good, accurate translation. Um, the second part of those parallel phrases is has to do with the origin of these gifts and the the unity of the God of the gifts. So you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit listed there. Did you notice that in uh, Roman numeral 1 of your notes, letter A? The last part of each phrase, you have Father, Son, and Spirit, but in reverse order. You have Spirit, Son, and Father that are listed there for us. Very interesting. The Spirit gives the gifts. The Lord Jesus enables their use and the Father oversees the results in the church. But again, I wouldn't make a hard and fast distinction between the three members of the Trinity uh, because all of them share in some sense in the operations of God. So, for, for example, who created the universe? Well, you know, in the beginning God did. But then in John chapter 1, it says that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God and Without Him, nothing was made that was made. He made all things, John 1.3 says. So who created all things? Well, the Father through Jesus. And where was the Spirit? Well, I'll go back to Genesis 1. And the Spirit of God was brooding over the darkness, the waters that were there until God said, let there be light. So the Spirit of God is involved as well. Or how about the miracle of your conversion? Who did that? God the Father? Well, yeah. God the Son? Certainly. God the Holy Spirit? Well, without Him, it wouldn't have been applied to you. So, the members of the Trinity are in most operations that we see in the Bible somehow interconnected and interworking, each having their functional place and role in the work of God. And so it is in the church with the gifts. God has ordained them. Jesus has provided for them. The Spirit applies them to you. God is at work in the work of the church. You know, he's, Christ is working. God is working. I mentioned that earlier today. The Spirit is working. They're all working together in the work of the church. And this, this um, I don't have it really called out in the notes, but it just kind of lays heavy on me to think, and I hope I can maybe convey with these words that the heaviness, the burden to you, that you don't come to church to consume you come to church to serve and to use your gifts to serve others. And the fact that God has given them and God is operating in you and wants them for the benefit of the body, as we'll see as we get into this text more, just makes it a very important thing to think about and to work on and to be involved in in the life of the church. This is God doing this. This is not like we can just say, well, whatever, you know, um, 
as I say in, oh, in the conclusion of my notes, uh, because we're going to say that every person has a gift, no one has the gift of nothing. Okay, maybe that'll help you to remember everybody has a gift. No one, no Christian has the gift of nothing. And yet some of us might act like we have the gift of nothing. Well, I can't do any, I'm not able, I'm not, I can't serve. I'm, uh, maybe that's just an excuse for I don't want to. I don't want to get too involved. You've known people like that, I bet. I don't want to get too close to the church. It's a messy business. Yeah, it's true. Because it's sinners uh, involved in each other's lives. But, you know, that's how God has set it up to be. Um, now, the, the verse also highlights here, the verses rather, I should say in my notes, in verses 4 to 6, they highlight an important principle that has been hijacked for other purposes in our own, our own age. What, what is that principle? That principle is diversity in unity or unity in diversity. And so those words are repurposed today and everybody's supposed to be happy about unity and diversity and diversity and unity. But the, the idea originates here or, or some variation thereof that the one triune God gives different gifts to people, all the saved people of the church. It's an easy concept in one sense. I mean, it means that if we consider a particular gift... Not everyone in the church has that gift. Even if anybody at all has it in a particular local assembly. Maybe our church doesn't have a person who is gifted in all the different areas that God may, may, uh, may gift people in. And that's okay. That's His sovereign distribution of the gifts. Some have a gift and some do not, but this doesn't matter because it's the same Lord who is working in each one for the church. In fact, it says that in the end of verse number 6. Let your eyes look at that. It talks about the same God who works all in all. That means that He works all the gifts in all the different people. He produces or empowers these gifts in everyone. So don't let the all in all confuse you. It's he, that He works all these gifts in all the people in the church. Okay? So that covers one giver and many gifts, one God and many gifts, one triune God, of course, and many gifts. And now we move on to Roman numeral 2 in the notes, and that is that the gifts are expressions of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse number 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. So the word manifestation here is basically another synonym for gifts, uh, activities, workings, those, those things that we looked at in verses 4 through 7, ministries. The manifestation of the Spirit. It's a showing forth of the Spirit of God. It's the evidence of His presence and work in a person. So the gift, each gift, is not produced by you. It is produced by the Spirit. Yet, as with many things in which there is a conundrum between divine um, oh, provision, divine work, and human responsibility, there is also the truth that these gifts are exercised under the control of the person who has it responsibly, um, diligently, 
more or less so, depending on how much a person applies himself or herself or fails to apply himself or herself. So the presence of the manifestation of the Spirit is an evidence of the presence of the Spirit Himself. And you have the responsibility to exercise that gift under His power. But it is a gift of the Spirit. A gift given by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's, it's also going to be called a disclosure of the Holy Spirit. And it says there that it's given to each one in the church. Do not gloss over that little phrase. To each one. If you are born again, you have a specific sort of gift, ability, enablement, as we defined last time, that God has planned for you to be doing. Think of Ephesians uh, 2.10. After that great passage, it says that it's by grace that you're saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, these gifts, which He has before ordained, which He has foreordained that we should walk in them. So God has pre-planned you to be a part of your local assembly with your local with your gifts to that local church and you need to be exercising them in that body of believers. However, that works out. Uh, it may it may remember we said last time it may not be just about this local assembly. It may be about other assemblies or starting new churches or being involved in missions work or whatever it is. There's many, many different ways that these disclosures can be disclosed. But He has given you these particularly particular abilities to carry these gifts out in harmony and collaboration with the rest of the church. You will be most effective in carrying out that ministry to which God has called you. So that idea of harmony, of collaboration, of working together in the church because of the unity in the diversity it's just like, a, you know, if Paul maybe were writing today, he might not use what, what he does here, the, the illustration of the body, although he might because it's a very apt illustration having to do with the body, the physical body, and also doubles nicely for the body of Christ. But he might use the illustration of a machine, many different parts of a machine, but they all are designed to work in some harmonious arrangement together to accomplish the purpose for which that machine was designed. God designed the church for several purposes, mainly to glorify Him by worshiping, by instructing people to obey the commands of Christ and by reaching out to others to bring them into the church. That's our, that's our mission. That's our goal. That's our situation. But the church as a machine has all of its parts moving towards those goals, not toward the side exits, so to speak, or not just sitting there in a, in a parts bin, not being operational in the machine. Now, why are these gifts given? Again, look at the end of verse 7. They are given for the profit of everybody, the profit of all, the profit of the church. This is edification. It, it is for the help, benefit, profit, utility, the good of the assembly, these gifts. So yes, you can and should influence the entire church with 
your gift, whatever it is that you've been enabled to do. Uh, do it with all of your might. I'm alluding to Ecclesiastes. Remember that? I think it's chapter 9, verse 9 or 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might because after, there's no doing in the grave. You have one life. One life. It's soon going to be passed, right? Yeah. You know the rest of that little phrase. For the profit of everybody, whatever it is, do it with all your might. Wait, wait for the eternal profit to come later. You know, God doesn't always show us the fruit of what we did or are doing right away. You know why He does that? Well, help us trust Him. But also because if we see that what we're doing has some positive effect, our pride might get in the way and you know, gum up the gears of the machine so that it slows it down. It doesn't work properly. So we don't want our pride to ruin our gift. And so God sometimes allows people to labor for long periods of time and it only becomes evident later on sometime or maybe only in eternity how that gift was utilized. So don't be too quick to, to judge or to you know, say, well, they're not doing anything or there's no results there or I'm going to quit because I'm not seeing anything. Mate, if it's your gift, you keep using it. You just keep on going. Keep persevering. Uh, you know, it might not be all uh, excitement and, uh, you know, millions of people crowding into your assembly or whatever. Just keep serving. Keep working. Keep persevering. So we move on then from there, the gifts being expressions of the Holy Spirit, to verses 8 through 10, which is where kind of the largest section of the message is, but because it's a list of gifts, it could get kind of tedious, I suppose. So, uh, try to you know, pay attention and not, don't give up here. Um, verses 8 through 10. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. So each one of these, even when he comes down to verse um, 10, when he's starting to just quickly list them off, every one of these nine gifts that are listed here are understood to be given to certain individuals by the same Spirit. Given to somebody by the Spirit. Given to somebody by the Spirit. Given to somebody by the Spirit. Just make sure you have that down. The thing uh, that, that is the same is the Spirit of God. The thing that is different is the ability that He gives. And, and then Paul proceeds to give this list. Now, I think this list is not exhaustive, but it's representative. Okay, so... Uh, you know, if you go through the list and you say, boy, I don't have any of this, I'm cooked, uh, you know, I'm done. No, it's, it's not that simple. There are different categories of gifts. There are a couple of different passages, Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, that talk about certain spiritual uh, enablements that you can also look at as well. Um, but these are representative and they cover a, a wide range. Now, they can be divided into two groups. One is a group of communication kind of gifts and the other is a group of service gifts. Uh, you could also divide them into two other groups. You could divide the gifts into groups that are, are available today and gifts that have passed off the scene and are no longer available to the modern church. They were available in the early first century church, but after the completion of the New Testament and the passing of the apostles, they became unavailable 
to the church. And we'll see that in chapter 13 in some greater detail. That will help us to avoid all kinds of confusion that has come up in the charismatic churches about these gifts and how people are striving to try to achieve and achieve gifts that haven't been given to them by the Spirit and operate in, in ways that are outside of the bounds of biblical normalcy today. All right, so uh, just because a gift is a communication gift doesn't mean it's more important than a non-communicative kind of gift. Whether you divide these up into, into you know, two different groups by community, you have a word of wisdom as the first gift that is listed. Now, I'm going to take, uh, as I studied this, I kind of thought, hmm, how am I going to handle this? I'm going to take a view on these gifts that may not be what you initially anticipated. Like you might think, you might have thought a word of wisdom or prophecy or um, a word of knowledge, those are all relegated to the first century and they have nothing to do with us. But as I study these gifts, I realize there was an there was a in, in the first century sometimes a miraculous element to them or a, a revealing or revelatory element to these gifts. And then when that passed off the scene, that that specific type, the gift still continues, but in a different form or adjusted form. Let me see if I can help you to see that. What I'm trying to do is avoid the the uh, both ex, the one extreme of saying, well, most of these gifts are just not available at all. And the other extreme that says, well, yeah, they're available and they're available in miraculous proportions, like our charismatic friends say. That is, that is for some of these, just simply not the case. Now, let me see if I can help you with these. A word of wisdom. In other words, I don't have to be looking for some um, mystical, pietistic, supernatural explanation of a word of wisdom. I think we can understand how it does still apply today without having it be a gift of revealing of new revelation from God. Wisdom, what is a, a word of wisdom? Break down the phrase. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is the skillful application of God's Word to circumstances in life. Uh, it's taking biblical theory, I put theory kind of in quotes there, and accurately and reverently putting it into practice. That's Wisdom, skillful application of the Bible to life. For examples, God has told us to make disciples. This is the theory. And to honor our parents, the theory. And to work hard. And to think on things above and a thousand other things. I don't know if it's a thousand. Don't take me literally there, okay? Um, But how do we do that? How do we make disciples during COVID and honor our parents, say, if they're far off from us or... How do we work hard if we don't have a job? Or how exactly do we engage the battle of of impure or worried thoughts? So the Bible can guide us about those things. So that's, that's what wisdom is, the skillful application of the Bible to these kinds of questions. But now, if it's wisdom is one thing, but what is the word of wisdom? The word of wisdom is the ability to discern and then explain to others how to live biblically in various circumstances. The one gifted with such an ability examines a situation, say somebody comes to them for counsel, examines a situation from God's viewpoint and can explain 
how to apply God's Word. Okay, how do we reach people who are isolated away from us, gated off in their little homes or communities? How do we interact with our parents who live a far way away? And, and how do we apply the principle of leading a quiet life and working with our hands in this day and age? How can we rely upon God, the person would explain, if they had this gift, to think on things above and to meditate on pure and holy and just things and not worrisome thoughts? So that's the word of wisdom. I think you can see that that applies to today. Um, it doesn't have to be some kind of supernatural way far out. You know, I've got a word from God. No, I've got words from God. And I can apply those to my life. And somebody who has more skill in that than I do may provide some help to me to be able to do that. A word of knowledge is the second gift. Look at verse number 8 again. To another, the word of knowledge is given through the same Spirit. This seems similar at first to a word of wisdom, but I've taken it to be insight into the interconnected truth of Scripture. The interconnected system of truth in Scripture. Insight into that. Do you know anybody, or maybe are you this way, that, that knows the Bible quite well and you know, can connect the thoughts, the, the, the ideas, the truths in Scripture together in a way that is helpful and explain them. That's what this is. He can grasp and understand them. He can be able to explain them to others. Again, it's, a, it's not, not, not just knowledge. It's a word of knowledge. It's the ability to explain that. It's not just having the knowledge in your mind if, you're, if you have it here, but you're unable to express it cogently or coherently, it doesn't offer much profit to the church. Okay, So that's where the gift comes in. You know, Some people say, I know it, but I just can't explain it. That's where it's kind of a teaching gift. The word of knowledge. Now, a word of knowledge, I think maybe you don't have this part, this part of my notes in your notes, but a word of knowledge is not a word of imagination. I just coined that phrase, okay? Clever me. Uh, in which, you know, I'm thinking of a pastor who gets this idea that, boy, there's somebody in the audience, you know, and, and they, you know, uh, have some particular problem in their life and they list, they give the particular problem and, you know, they've got thousands of people in this, this audience and of course there's going to be somebody with that generic situation in their life and, and they have, the pastor has a very imaginative approach and he says, you know, this is what you should do. I just got a word from the Lord. No, he got a word from his imagination. That's all. And he gave this as if it was authoritative. And I've heard, people, I've heard this and seen illustrations written in books when the person is like, when I, the pastor, you know, when I said that, there was actually somebody in the room where that happened. It's like a miracle. And... They're portraying it as if it's a word from God and it has nothing to do with this book. It's just made up. That's not a word of knowledge. The word of knowledge is somebody who knows this book and is able to show you the interconnected system of truth and explain it to you. That's a gift. It's not miraculously given by God. 
Although, as I say, in the first century, there could have been an element of this in which God was giving new revelation. He did to the Apostle Paul, right? Yeah, but we would probably just call that revelation and then, and then putting it down in Scripture, inspiration, to make sure it got there correctly. But anyway, let's go on to the third one. Where are we at? Verse number uh, 8. We have the word of wisdom. We have the word of knowledge. To another, verse 9, faith by the same Spirit. Now, faith, that's an interesting one because everybody has faith who's a Christian. A true Christian always has faith. You always believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You always call upon Him as Lord. You always confess Him and say, Jesus is Lord. And if you're wondering about that, go back to the last hour. Listen to that recording. We talked about what Jesus is Lord means. Um, and, And faith is a gift from God, by the way, isn't it? I believe that. Ephesians 2 it's by grace you're saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. I think it's the whole package that's the gift. But if you don't believe it from that passage, look at Philippians 1.29. Look at Philippians 1.29. Here's what it says. For to you it has been granted or given on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but also to suffer. So that verse is fairly explicit that to believe and to suffer have both been given into your care by God. But we're not talking about saving faith here as, the, as this special gift. Every Christian has saving faith by definition. But these, are given, this, these gifts are given to certain people in the church, not to all in the assembly. So what is this gift of faith? The gift is probably best observed by other people in the recipient of that gift in that he or she has an unusually strong and operative trust in God. Probably amidst very difficult circumstances. When when is faith really shown or tested other than difficult circumstances? You as an observer might marvel at how, how can that person hold up How can they trust the Lord so thoroughly despite those very difficult hardships that they're in? Are you thinking of some situation or some person that you know or some, you know, you think, wow, that person has faith. You know, and they're probably sitting there thinking, man, my faith is only a little mustard seed when they're honest with themselves and they're humble in their opinion of themselves. But then, you know, somebody from the outside looking says, my, that person really has it. Now, this raises a point I think we should bear in mind. Sometimes, especially when you're young or immature in the faith, you, d- you cannot see your own gift. Others might be able to discern it better than you can. And so, you might want to listen to other people's evaluation of your gift and observe how you can encourage them and profit them in the operation of that. So, it may be that others see it better than you do. Thus, it's important to be in a church and active in a church so that people can see those things in you. Okay, Number four on our list is the gift of healings given to some by the same Spirit. So, so far we've seen a modern application of these, uh, the first three to today. But this one is no longer given by the Spirit. Jesus and the apostles could at times heal people from all kinds of diseases and demonic possession. 
And the purpose of the gift was to authenticate them as messengers of God. Why do I say that it's not given today? Well, we'll make an argument at length for that from 1 Corinthians 13. But let me just argue from um, uh, empirical data. I don't see any healings happening today. That is, people given the ability to go touch somebody else and raise them up out of a legitimate sickness. I'm not talking about healing services where it's just all faked. Okay? Real legitimate healing. I want to take that person who has the real legitimate gift of healing through the university hospital, hall by hall, floor by floor, A, B, C, and D, and have them empty the place out. When I see that, then I'll know that there's a gift of healing that doesn't exist. It was to authenticate the messenger of the gospel in the first century and the Lord Jesus as the minister of God, as the Son of God, and, and, and it accomplished that. These were signs of the coming kingdom too, by the way. Remember when John the Baptist asked, he was in prison, sent messengers, asked of Jesus, are you the coming one? You know, even he fell on hard times psychologically and was in deep depression. I mean, he's sitting here in jail looking at dying, basically. That's his only out. That's the only way he's getting out of jail. And he said, are you the coming one or do we wait for another? And what did Jesus reply? You go back and tell John what you've seen. The dead are raised. The blind see. The lame walk. The mute speak. And that's what Isaiah 35 said. It talks about the lame leaping and the mute speaking and the dead being raised to life as a sign of the coming kingdom. And Jesus did those miracles and His apostles to say, we are messengers of that kingdom. Wonderful truths. Those gifts, uh, that gift does not exist, however, today. Now, that doesn't mean, however, that God doesn't heal people. He does. In answer to believing prayer, let's be clear about that. Okay. So when I say the gift of healing doesn't exist, that doesn't mean healing doesn't exist. I'm talking about the gift where somebody's endowed with an ability to go heal people or have a, a handkerchief taken from their body like Paul did and touch somebody and they're healed. Nope, we don't have that. But God is pleased to raise up the sick to health. James chapter 5. They for, you know, confess their sins. Church anoints them with oil perhaps in very serious circumstances. The Lord will raise them up to health. If that's His will. Next gift. To another, the working of miracles. I'm not going to spend a long time on this. This is similar to the prior one, no longer given by the Spirit. Uh, possessed by Jesus and the apostles, this gift allowed them to do things like feeding 5,000 people, um, Casting a temporary darkness over somebody's eyes. Remember, Paul did that one time in Acts chapter 13. The design of these, of this gift was to glorify God as the Lord over nature. The Lord over the laws of physics, if you will, and to convince other people to believe. Today we have the Scriptures. And those are sufficient for people to believe. I hope you, I hope you, you understand that. Do you agree with that? You don't have to give them evidences from nature. You don't have to give people, uh, you know, uh, all this kind of apologetics stuff. It may be helpful, but 
if they don't believe the Scriptures, it's not going to do them any good if one rises from the dead. Luke chapter 16 said as much. The rich man in torment in Hades, send, my, send Lazarus, send somebody from here. If, if, if somebody rises from the dead, then my brothers will believe. What did Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they're not going to believe somebody rises from the dead. And we have proof of that. Jesus did rise from the dead. Did that cause people to suddenly miraculously start believing? No. Gobs of people in the world deny the resurrection, deny the incarnation, deny that Jesus even existed. Convenient for them. Sad, sad situation. But we have what we need to believe. We don't need to be persuaded further by miracles or gifts of healings. And then we have prophecy. What are we on? Five, six here. The prophecy is the next one to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits. What is prophecy? Most modern readers think of prophecy and they think immediately of predicting the future. The idea of prophecy, however, is not primarily predicting the future. Yes, Isaiah did that. Jeremiah. Ezekiel, Daniel. Uh, but their main function was not as predictors. Their main function was as preachers. And so they preached. They proclaimed. Now, in the early church, they didn't have the whole New Testament yet, so sometimes the proclaimers were given a word to proclaim from God, like Paul, like Peter, like John, James, these guys, who, who preached. And they got new revelation. But even then, most of their preaching was old revelation. How many times did Paul get the revelation, say, of, of uh, the mystery of the church? One time. How many times did he preach it? Probably thousands of times in every place where he went. So it was very often repeating what he'd already been given, and that's what we do. We're repeating what we've already been given. Nothing new here. No, there's not supposed to be innovation in doctrine or new discoveries, so to speak, in the Bible. Prophecy is proclamation. It is today no revelatory aspect to it at all. It is preaching. That's what prophecy is. Some people have the gift to proclaim the Word of God. You hear certain pastors and you just know that guy is really gifted to proclaim God's Word. There's no miraculous aspect to preaching unless, unless we're to include the work of the Spirit in the pulpit. What, I mean by that? what do I mean by that? I mean, if I'm preaching the Gospel and somebody is convicted and the Spirit of God draws them to life in Christ, that is a miracle. Okay? That's not me working a miracle if I'm the preacher. I'm very pleased if that happens, but it's not me. It's the Spirit of God doing that work. So that's not a gift of of somehow evangelism or something like that. That's a sovereign movement of God directly on the person who is hearing. Not a gift in me as a speaker or any, any preacher. But most preaching does not have such a miraculous outcome. Um, you know, I wish I could say that you know, my preaching works a miracle on the hearers every time. No, it's not that. Preaching is a very uh, pedestrian kind of activity in a sense. It's normal. It's the normal means that God gives to the church to remind us of the Word of God, to teach us, 
to encourage us to obey, to help us to apply it like, like wisdom to our life? How do we apply it today? You know, how do we meet today in light of all that's going on outside of the church and the society and the pandemic and all? How do we do that? So we have to apply Scripture wisely. Um, but preaching is, is using the normal means of human discourse to inform and to persuade the mind. And of course, you've been illuminated by the Spirit. You've been enabled to embrace the Word of God. You welcome it into your life and you want to obey it, you know, on your good side, so to speak, not on your flesh side. And so, you, you know, we use the normal means of teaching. The life given previously by God allows you to understand and be convicted about what you hear. So I don't call that convicting work a miracle. That's just a normal means of God using the conscience to work in a person's life. What I'm trying to do here is say to you, this is just the normal activity that goes on for, for churches and believers after that miracle of regeneration. It's a, a success, successive series of, of steps of sanctification, Sunday by Sunday, Wednesday by Wednesday, you know, meeting by meeting in which you get more of the Word and the Word has more of an effect on you and you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's, it's an organic thing. It's like you know, our boys, when we, when we brought them first to the church, they're in a, in, a carry, in a child carrier, you know? And the next thing you know, they're six feet tall. What happened? Well, they grew, but it was just a little bit at a time. So you are doing. In, in applying yourselves to the means of grace of listening to the proclamation of God's Word. Next one on our list, discerning of spirits. Discernment cuts through the distraction and the deception that is layered on top of reality in our world. Now, there's, a, there's something, there's real stuff happening. And then the devil... And the flesh and the world layer on top of that all kinds of cruft, we'll call it, to spin it and to make it say what they want it to, to seem and mask the real situation from the person looking at it. Discerning of spirits allows the person that gift of discernment to see a situation for what it really is. The situation... We're talking about could be something going on in the world scene. It could be a false doctrinal system. It could be a person who's influenced by a demonic spirit. A believer has the, with the ability to, to be discerning, sees through all of those layers and gets to the heart of the matter. Without this, the church could fall into doctrinal error because you don't see or notice the new wind of doctrine that blows into town. Now, this is not spiritual vision, okay? That, you know, I can see inside of a person and I can see the spirit that's inside of them. That's not, it's not a creepy, crawly sixth sense like, ooh, I can sense the spirit there. You know how you know a, a, a bad spirit? Not by the creepy crawlies. The Lord Jesus told us, you will know them by their. Fruit. Simple. Two more. Tongues and interpretation of tongues. We'll have uh, time to talk about these at greater length in the future. But tongues was a gift where somebody was able to immediately speak a new language. 
interpretation of tongues, they could hear that language, they could understand it, and they could translate it into the, you know, another language to be able to speak to uh, that truth to somebody else. So, those are two gifts that we'll look at in more detail later. We must emphasize that those gifts operational today can only be properly exercised, fueled, informed, if you will, guided by the Bible. You cannot have wisdom or faith or knowledge or the proclamatory gift of prophecy or the discerning of spirits. You can't have any of those without a deep understanding of the Bible. You might have all of the ability in the world, but if this is not informing that ability, then you are going to have no profit, offer no profit to anybody. Okay? All these gifts, we just reiterate, are given by God. And notice at the last of verse 11, He distributes to each one individually as He wills. Whatever gift you're given, you think it's big, you think it's small. You think it's you know, public, you think it's private. You think it's good, you think it's diminutive. God has sovereignly assigned that to you. And so you best use it. You're a steward of that now. okay? And He, de- he decides how He sees fit. He knows how you fit in to His church. Well, He's the designer of the church, isn't He? So He knows how you fit in. And His will should satisfy us no matter what God has given to us. No matter how much or how little or whatever the world thinks of our gift or the church. So there's one God who gives a variety of gifts for the benefit of the church. That's our message today. So therefore, our activity in the church should be unified as we carry out our various assignments for the temporal and eternal blessing of the church. So we're unified carrying out these various assignments for the temporal and eternal blessing of the church. Remember what I said earlier. No one has the gift of nothing. If you are not applying yourself somehow in the life of the church, you need to figure out what's going on and how to fix it. If you're a part laying in the part bin in the machine room, you need to find out how you fit into the machine and uh, get operational. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity this morning and early afternoon now to look into your word and I pray that as kind of normal and unexciting as an exposition of scripture might be that we would find it to be encouraging and challenging for us that we would live in the way that you want us to live. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen.